Um, Psalm chapter 1. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. And if you'd like to read along with me, we'll read the whole psalm. How many of you remember doing that back in the day? We're just going to read the whole thing together. Let's read it. Uh, if you don't have the English Standard Version, it's right here on the screen so we, uh, we can at least be in one accord. Amen. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Aren't you thankful for the word of God? Amen. I'm going to do my best to teach tonight. Um, I knew this was coming and it came before I even got to the pulpit um, last week. Uh, if you weren't here and you missed it, I talked about turtles. Amen. Why you should never paint a turtle. How many of you ever painted a turtle? Amen. Let us know so we can come after you because it's really a bad thing to do. Amen. Why you should never paint a turtle. And I, as I was preparing, studying, and praying for tonight, the Lord brought me back uh, to the animal kingdom. And so uh, I'd like to introduce you to my little friend here. Amen. He, uh, he hails from the great state of Petsmart. Well, I, I say he, I'm not really sure how to tell whether it's a he or a she. I'm just glad he's still alive, amen? <laughs> and so I'm going to talk to you uh, a little wisdom from the life of a goldfish tonight, okay? Um, don't ask me why um, or how it came about, but sometimes the Lord speaks to me and, and just leads me in directions and, you know, maybe God wants me to write a children's book. I don't know. But um, whether it's Sesame Street or Scripture, I feel like there's something we can learn from the life of a goldfish tonight. So let me ask this question in the beginning. How many of you have ever wondered why goldfish die so fast? Anybody ever gone to a fair or a carnival and they, you, you won a goldfish and he was belly up by the time you got to the parking lot? <laughs> Amen. That's happened. A few years ago we went to the uh, state fair in Flagstaff in Arizona. And you probably know how the story goes because uh, Jairus, who's about nine years old, and, and she's grown up to be a beautiful young girl, but she was a you know, super nerd at nine years old. She wore glasses. She, she had pigtails. And when she won that goldfish, she was excited it is an understatement. She was over the moon. It was her, her pet. This belonged to her. She had won this by some carnival game um, that probably took little skill. And, and so I'm telling you, uh, before we could even get home, we lived 10, 15 minutes away, that dude was belly up and Jaira had tears. Why did he die? Why did he die? It turned out to be a pretty traumatizing event for my little girl. And I know that because as I was talking about getting a goldfish for this lesson tonight, I was at lunch with Jaira and she said, uh, why would you buy a goldfish? I said, well, you know, I'm thinking about using it for my lesson tonight. And she says, those things die before you can even get them home. Why would anybody want a goldfish? I felt the wounds of bitterness rising from deep, deep within her spirit. <laughs> and uh, she said, why would anybody want? They don't even live that long. Remember that one that died before we could even get home? She, it left an indelible imprint on her. Goldfish don't last very long. That was the impression that she had of goldfish. And maybe it's your impression too. And so... Uh, when I picked this fish up, we tried to find a name for him, and um, we tried to, to, uh, to figure out what we were going to call him. All kinds of crazy uh, names came out. Angelo, I don't, I don't know why, but one of them wanted to name him Angelo. Another one wanted to name him Spider-Man Tom Holland. Um, that was Rylan. <laughs> He's five. Um, we had all kinds of names, but I really, I, I didn't tell my kids that I already had a name picked out. This, this little guy, we're going to call him Blessing. Amen. He's a little blessing, isn't he? In fact, I'm going to bless somebody else with him after church because <laughs> I ain't taking him home. <laughs> this is our little blessing. Everybody say hello to blessing. Amen. Welcome, blessing. And so 
uh, to understand why goldfish die so easily, I started doing a little digging and found out that goldfish actually have a rich history with humanity. Um, this is from Anne-Marie Rue, a professor of history and science who literally wrote the book on goldfish. You know how I know? Because the book is called Goldfish. She wrote the book, the history, the pivotal paper. And now, you may think that that's not that big a deal, but there are over 40,000 scientific papers that have been written on these little guys right here. 40,000 papers. And, and so... There is a rich history of the mighty goldfish. Now, her book was inspired by her personal pet goldfish named Speedy, who, just like Gyra, as a young scientific-minded child, discovered that her pet goldfish would not last forever because she reached in and she touched him and she felt how rough his scales were and she felt bad for him. So she put some hand lotion in there because he had rough scales and she wanted to soften them up. And little Speedy didn't last very long. <laughs> little Speedy died. And so that happened to be the catalyst that would one day cause her to study goldfish. It turns out that goldfish and humanity go back about a thousand years because goldfish are basically a type of carp. How many of you ever seen carp in the lake? It's basically the same thing as a goldfish. And it was first bred for food in Asian countries and they originally were green and gray and drab and ugly colors, but someone noticed that some of them had a little sparkle of red or orange or gold in them, and so they started breeding these bad boys together. They had a goldfish farm, and they bred them into the goldfish that we now know and love and win at carnivals. It's important to do important work. Amen. And so they bred them purposely to produce the rich orange color that's common today. And in the ninth century, Buddhist monks started putting these goldfish in their temple ponds because they believed that it was an act of good service that rather than eat something, they would sacrifice it for the good of the temple, and it was an act of good service. And so they started filling their ponds up with goldfish, these little, little tiny guys that, that start off so small. And so the trend caught on in Japan and Europe, and these small fish made their way from being food to being our friends. They were bred for us to eat, but who eats goldfish anymore other than the cracker variant of goldfish? I can't tell you the last time I went to a restaurant and they had, you know, a goldfish sandwich. I think I'd pass. But they, they made their way into our homes and into our hearts via a little bowl. And, and, and goldfish caught on. They caught on in Japan and in Europe and these small fish, at one point in the late 1800s, the U.S. government was giving away 20,000 goldfish a year just because people wrote their congressman. Can you imagine that today? You write your congressman, and they send you a goldfish in the mail. <laughs> because of their history as a novelty pet, most people don't realize what is living in their bowl. It turns out that goldfish have a lot more potential than most people realize. Amen? They got a lot more in there than, you know, they just seem small and harmless. I think this guy cost me 34 cents today. I tried to put some food in there. I think I fed enough for 42 goldfish. <laughs> they don't eat much. They're small. They're tiny. They're cheap. You buy them really to feed other fish. When you go fishing very often, sometimes they don't, they don't have shiners and you get goldfish instead. It's a bait fish. It's, it's small. It's tiny. It's what you use to catch bigger fish, but it turns out that goldfish have a lot more potential than you'd think they would. And they, they are very adaptable. They can live in a wide range of water temperatures. They can outcompete native species. When you turn goldfish loose into your local lake, they will outpace the, the, the uh, fish that are natural to that habitat. They are more hardy in a head-to-head -head contest. Uh, trout will starve in a lake while goldfish are thriving. In fact, that's what happened when fishermen started catching four to five pound goldfish in a Minnesota lake. Can you imagine out bass fishing and you think you've got a big one and you pulled up a little blessing here, but about that much bigger? 
world record-sized goldfish being caught in the wild because either some pet owner decided to set their little scaly friend free or because some fisherman dumped a bucket of bait in the water and didn't take a second thought, never imagining what they could become. Never perceiving or thinking like more than three minutes down the road. He's just a little fish in a little bowl. What harm or what foul could he do, right? What damage could he do? And so they turn out to be quiet, hardy little guys. And this is because of the principle of adaptation. That is, that outer forces impact inner processes over time to bring about change. So when you take this little guy, our little blessing here, and you put him in a new environment, in a larger environment, in a pond or in a lake, he won't look so small because his outer environment begins to influence his behavior. And his behavior begins to inspire some internal processes that cause him to grow and to become a different kind of beast altogether. It's the principle of adaptation. And so, um, why then do they die so easily? You see, in the right environment, a goldfish can live about 10 to 15 years. I got him in the car today, and, and we had Aiden Arat with us. She said, why, why do you have that? You know those things die, don't you? I said, actually, they live about 10 to 15 years. And all day long, everybody's been asking me to preach my sermon. What, what are you using a goldfish? My son begged me, tell me what you're using that goldfish for. I said, you're going to have to watch on YouTube. He said, but I'm going to you service. I said, well, you're going to have to watch on YouTube. I'm not ruining the surprise. Those things die. No, no, they live 10 to 15 years. I'm basically, I don't know if y'all know this, I'm basically an expert in turtles and goldfish after the last couple weeks. <laughs> Your local Steve Irwin zoologist preacher. <laughs> 10 to 15 years, but they die so easily. You see, when you place them in a small bowl with bad water quality, and, and you don't replace the water, and they don't have enough oxygen in the water, you see... Their environment determines their outcome. Their environment determines what they will be and what they can do with their life. They can either be a carp that takes over a lake and runs out native species, or they can be the little dead goldfish that goes belly up before you get it home. It just all depends on the environment that you put it in. And so a goldfish is not just this little weak thing that cannot make it. It is a strong, divinely designed, a hardy thing that can really take territory if you put it in the right environment. You see, they die easily because they were never designed to live in a little bowl. They were never designed to live that way. In the right environment, they're tenacious. They are overcomers. They can thrive in unfamiliar habitats. They can grow formidable and strong. And it's as if the inner beast is unleashed when a goldfish gets loose in the right environment. They don't just survive. They flourish there. And it boils down to this for goldfish and for Christians too. That environment means everything. Environment means everything. Why am I preaching about a goldfish? Because... In the story of the goldfish, I see the story of the saint. That, that it, this bowl can define us, the size of our environment. And, and what's going into our environment can determine the processes that determine how big and how strong, how faithful, how powerful we will be. Amen? And so, I want to make a statement. I believe God wants us to live a blessed spiritual life. Does anybody believe that? He doesn't want us to flounder, no pun intended. <laughs> he wants us to flourish spiritually. He wants us to live the blessed life. And that's what Psalm 1 is really about. Is, is It is the introductory psalm to the rest of the psalms. Psalms 1 and 2 introduce and set the spirit and the tone by which we receive all the rest of the 150 psalms. And so, um, what do we hear there? The first word in psalm is blessed. Somebody say blessed. It's our little blessing. It's our little blessed fish, our blessed man here. Blessed is the Hebrew word esher, which is translated 
blessed in Psalm 1. And it carries the idea of happiness or contentment. It's a form of the Hebrew word ashar, which means in its root to be straight and to be right. And so when the psalmist says blessed is the man, he was speaking of the happiness and the blessedness and the contentment in life of the man or woman who is right or has things straight with God. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. That is the life that God wants you to have. Because I see a lot of Christians living in a little bowl, and they're sad, and they're tired, and they're anxious, and they're depressed, and, and it feels like their world is small, and it feels like their prayers just bounce back and forth between the tiny little walls, and, and they're not really reaching the eternal heights that they see in the scripture, and, and they're living in an environment that can never produce their potential. God wants me to be blessed. He wants me to be a blessed man. And blessing doesn't have anything to do with the kind of car you drive. It doesn't have to do with anything to do with the kind of house you live in. Now, those can be blessings, but the kind of blessed the scripture is talking about is the soul-satisfied Christian, who is the Greek, in the Greek, it is makarios, blessed. In the Sermon on the Mount, it's makarios. It's an overriding sense of happiness, joy, and satisfaction. This joy that I have, the world did not give it to me, and the world can't take it away. That's the kind of blessing that God wants us to live in, amen? That's the kind. And so, if you're struggling, and if your growth is stagnated, if your problems seem to loom larger than your blessings, I want to ask you, could it be that your environment is killing your potential, and your blessing, your contentment? And your satisfaction. Could it be that your environment is making the difference for your life and for your outcome? Could it be that it's your environment that is limiting you from your future that God wants you to have? And so tonight I want to look at three life-giving steps to grow in the blessings of God. And, and, and so this is our little friend blessing. Amen. You can put the sermon slide up. I'll go ahead and give you my title. My title tonight is How Big Is Your Bowl? Amen. I tried to find something clever, but I thought, well, we'll just go straight on the nose. How big is your bowl? But listen, there are three life-giving steps that help us to grow in the blessings of God and to make sure that we live as blessed as we possibly can. And I want to bring them out of Psalm chapter 1. And the first one is... You've got to build boundaries for your blessings. Somebody say that. You've got to build boundaries for your blessings. You've got to build boundaries. Look, you know what these walls of this bowl are? They are boundaries that are keeping the life-stealing air out of the water. And it's containing and creating the environment in which this little guy right here can thrive. And so... If, if you want to live a blessed life, now look, we all know what's going to happen if I take the fish out of the water. He's going to flop around. He's going to flail around. He's going to heave. And eventually he's going to die. Thank God the kids have kid life tonight. I would have hated to break anybody's heart. I'm afraid this guy might not make it through the sermon. Because I don't know what I'm doing with fish. But listen, if we take him out of the bowl He's a fish out of water. We know that statement. How many of you ever got a new job? You said, I feel like a fish out of water. In other words, you are out of your league. You can't handle the environment. It's all new to you. You, you feel like you're floundering and flopping around. And, and so we have to build boundaries for our blessings. Because if we remove our little blessing from the bowl, it'll die. So there, there has to be something, an environment that is created through setting boundaries. In Psalm 1, the psalmist begins to explain the difference between a man that lives a blessed life and one that doesn't. And he starts out by telling us where blessings cannot survive. You see, there are certain environments that our little blessing can't live in. There are certain environments that it can't thrive in. Now, I know this is simplistic, but it's all right if we just teach the Bible sometimes. I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get you to remember. That's why I use goldfish and turtles, all right? But listen, this is not super profound 
but it's something that needs to be said in the century in which we're living. Is the Christian life, the blessing, and the blessed life requires some boundaries of us, amen? It requires some things and places and environments that we can't try to live in. You see, in Psalm 1, he explains the difference between a blessed life and one that's not blessed. And he starts off by telling us that there are places blessings can't survive. Blessed is the man, listen to this, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There are some things that blessed people do not do. Why? Because they create an inhospitable environment for peace, for happiness, for contentment, and for joy to live in. Our blessing, our soul satisfaction cannot live in certain places. And so the psalm is this introductory song that sets us up. To, to, to be able to receive the blessing of all of the other psalms. And it starts off like this with the negative. There's some stuff that righteous people don't do. Without boundaries, all of the blessings and beauty of worshiping the God found in the pages of the psalms are reliant. They're all reliant on boundaries. And without those boundaries, we cannot receive all of that beauty. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not. You can't, you can't receive that without the revelation and the understanding of boundaries. Amen? And so, um, without these boundaries, they, these psalms are as hopeless and dead as a fish out of water. We can gain nothing from them without the bowl. Amen? We need the bowl. And so there are three things that a blessed man doesn't do. I'm going to try to get through these and teach these um, in the next few minutes. But the first one we read, blessed is a man who does not walk in ungodly counsel. The word ungodly here means without worship. Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of those without worship. There are worldviews that surround us, that inundate us every single day. Life applications and life goals and derivative lifestyles the world is pushing towards us every single day. But I'm here to tell you that blessing cannot live in the environment of ungodly counsel. And, and what the real question underneath this is, is what is it that is forming your thinking? What is it that's informing your view of life? How are you arriving at the beliefs which motivate your actions? Because there are some boundaries. And if, if you're arriving at those conclusions from ungodly sources, your blessing cannot live there. Every day we're inundated with ungodly perspectives. If we're not careful, the Bible says we can fall into the rudiments of the world. The Bible says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit and the rudiments of the world. Right? That, that's, that word rudiments, I, when I used to play drums uh, way back when I was a teenager, these are the things I didn't want to do. Rudiments are routines. You, you go through the, uh, the different uh, exercises for the drums. And, and so I didn't want to do them because there were. There were things you had to do every single day, paradiddles and flams and all. I, I didn't care about it all. I just want to play a song. You know? But listen, he said, beware lest you're spoiled through philosophy and vain deceit. Empty lies is what he's saying. And the rudiments or routines and rituals of this world. Because when we don't have boundaries over our heart, and over our soul, and over where we're deriving our definition from, we cannot experience the kind of blessed life that God wants for us to have. We'll just be a little fishy in a little bitty bowl. <laughs> Amen. And so what we listen to, listen to me, what we listen to, what we watch, who we follow on social media, how we set the goals and direction of our life, they are actually creating an environment in which our spiritual man will either live or die. It's creating an environment around us that is determining the outcome 
of our potential. And so, you know, we inherently understand this because a, a, a few years ago uh, it came out, I knew it before it came out, but they, they said that SpongeBob actually makes kids dumber. Literally. They, they said, don't show SpongeBob SquarePants to your kids because it makes them dumber. It teaches them to think in a way that does not encourage them and to act in a way that does not encourage deeper thinking. And they did all these kind of studies on it and they did, they proved that if you watch that, it'll make you most stupid. <laughs> and so, you know, we didn't let our kids watch that. There's stuff we don't expose our children to, but then we grow up to be adults and we think we're big and bad enough to handle anything and everything. But I've come to tell you the blessed life comes with boundaries. And if you want to live the blessed life, you can't, you can't just fill your life with the mess of the world all of the time and then look for the light of the glorious gospel of grace to shine through the crud that you've allowed in your environment. Blessed life takes boundaries. And, and so what we listen to and, and what we watch and all of these things, the things that we pay attention to, it could be friends, it could be people that we spend our time with, it, it could be goals that we set and even careers that we follow. They are creating an environment that will determine how big we grow and how blessed we are. And so, what if the source of your discontentment comes from following ungodly counsel? What if the source of your dissatisfaction does not come from the fact that the church isn't doing a good enough job. What if it's coming from the fact that you maybe are listening to something that comes from a godless perspective? Maybe you're trying to live and maybe just naturally falling into the way the world lives and you find yourself feeling as if God is far away. What if, what if that is the result of ungodly counsel? You see, the things that this world tells you will satisfy you, will ultimately leave you empty and wanting more. And we know it about drugs. Listen, we know it. The, the devil's not going to slip it past us. We know that if you go to the bar and get drunk, you ain't going to be happy. But I'll tell you where we slip up is when he slips pretty good things. A good career, a promotion, a job, a, an opportunity. Uh, all of these things, when it, when it slips in... And it seems like it would be good and fun and pleasurable. And I can't see the downside to it. And, and we, we fall into the pattern of the world. Here's what they'll do. Some of y'all are going to relate to this. They'll tell you to get skinny. Woo. And then you work hard and you get skinny. And guess what? You ain't satisfied. <laughs> Definitely not satisfied. Because you're hungry. You may look better, but you're hungry. <laughs> and then when you get skinny... They'll say it's not enough just to be skinny, you need to get rich too. You work hard, you climb the corporate ladder, and when you're rich, the world will then tell you, you just haven't found the right hobby or the right person yet, and it'll have you chasing romance or pleasure or fun. It'll have you chasing all sorts of things to find your satisfaction from, because it's ungodly counsel. And when you chase that pleasure, then it will tell you that you chase the wrong kind of pleasure. And we can see it in the book of Ecclesiastes as Solomon seeks after every avenue and pathway of man that man says will make you happy, blessed, and satisfied. And he cannot find it there. Why? Because blessing requires boundaries. And, and that is what ungodly counsel always does. It always moves the lines. As soon as you think you've arrived at something, it will introduce something else. That's not enough, and, and there's something missing, and you've got to chase this and that now. And if we allow it, the world will keep us so occupied that we never have time to seek after God. Your schedule, your daily routine, the Bible says the rudiments of the world. Listen, I believe one of the greatest struggles of modern day Christianity is not having time to even take a look at this right here. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. That's what God says. And so it requires boundaries. There's some areas I'm not going to live, some, some sources that I'm not going to tap, some stuff I'm not going to listen to. A and so there are many Christians who are living in discontent because they're listening to and shaping their lives around ungodly counsel. You know who your role model ought to be? Jesus. 
You're getting it twisted anywhere, anytime it gets outside of that. I mean, hey, it's good to admire qualities in others and all of that. But the Bible says we are being formed after the fashion, and fashioned after and into the image of Christ. And so um, there is a test of godly counsel that I want to give you before we move on. How do I know that what I'm listening to is godly or ungodly? It's, it's the fruit test, amen? It's the fruit test. I saw a Christian wearing a shirt one time that said fruit inspector, and sometimes that's what we are. Sometimes that's what we got to be, is we need to find out, does this thing produce fruit or does it not? Because fruit takes time. And so we, we got to look down the road in decisions and voices that we're listening to, and we got to ask this question, where is this taking me and what will this produce? How will this impact my walk with God six months from now? Scripture says it this way. It says, wisdom is justified of her children. You know what I think about when I read that verse? It's just a private interpretation. I think of all the parenting advice I've gotten from people on social media. Or in life. When somebody leans in and says, you know what you ought to do with them kids? And they kids are tearing up Jack. <laughs> Their kids are running wild. Wisdom is justified of her children. Who would take advice from a parent whose kids are tearing apart the house? Huh? On how to keep a clean house. No. Wisdom is justified of her children. And so, before you accept something as true or good, consider its outcome. Because, listen, blessed people know how to build boundaries in their life. They know how to say no to something so that they can say yes to better things. And so what I'm telling you is examine your life and build some boundaries in. Because you know what? Boundaries don't just hold things out. But boundaries keeps the good stuff in. It's this bowl that allows him to live in this environment that he never should have been in and never belonged in in the first place. It's the boundaries that give us the ability to find growth. Amen? I'm moving quickly on. And we still got 20 more minutes. Glory to God. I love Wednesdays. So here's the second one. He said, blessed is the man that does not stand in the way of sinners. Stand in the way of sinners. Now the word way there means actually a pathway. And so listen, sinners are not just sinning, but the, what they're doing is coming from somewhere and is leading to somewhere. Amen? It's the pathway of sin. Now we all struggle, we all stumble, we all sin at one time or another. But it's a different thing altogether to stand in the way of sinners. And you, you know what I found interesting about this part of the passage is that it doesn't say walking in the way of sinners. It's walking in ungodly counsel than standing in the way of sinners, right? Standing in the way of sinners and then sitting in the seat of the scornful. It's a progression. He's moving towards ungodly things. He's stopping there and then he's taking a seat. And we'll look at what happens with that. But it says he's standing in the way of sinners. And, and here's what you need to know. Is you cannot aim your life at lesser gods and end up living a blessed life. You cannot aim your life at lesser saviors and lesser solutions and end up with a blessed life. If I'm looking for anything other than God to define me and to fulfill me. Because what sin is, it's missing the mark. It's thinking money will solve my problems. Honey, money will not solve your problems. Listen, it, it's not another new relationship that will solve your issue. Because often in sin, what we are doing is we are looking for something to save us from what we're feeling at that moment. And he says, righteous people do not stand in the way of sinners. You cannot aim your life at lesser gods. Jesus in Matthew 7, the whole chapter, he talks about these two different ways. And he says this, he says, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And narrow, narrow is the gate. And hard is the way that leads to life. And those who find it are few. He's saying there's some things that blessed people don't do. And what they don't do is listen to ungodly counsel. And they don't go stand in the way of sinners and say, you know, I'm just going to try it out for a while and see how it feels. They're not stationary yet. They're just, just trying it out. They just stopped along the way and said, you know, I think I'll do this for a while. And blessed people never stand in the way of sinners. And, you know, this whole chapter in Matthew 7 is an echo 
of Psalm chapter 1 because Jesus, in that chapter, he warns against false prophets. And he tells us you will know them by their fruit. And then he tells us the parable of the two men who built their houses and one built on the rock and one built on the sand. And he says, the one who builds on the rock is he who hears my word and does it. In other words, he sets his life up to follow after the path of godliness. But the other guy, he does it his way. He does it the world's way. He does it the easy way. And when the storm comes, the scripture says his house is fall, falls down and great was the fall of it. And so, listen, the second thing is righteous people consistently choose the godly path. So they set some boundaries in their life. There's some roads they won't go down. There's some stuff they won't listen to. And listen, they don't, the, the Bible says that blessed people do not sit in the seat of the scornful. This is the only time the word scornful appears in the scripture. So it makes it hard to cross-reference. But when I started looking it up, here's what it means. It means to mock. And it defined it as the hostile speech of fools. What happens when you progress in this Life that can produce no blessing. And you're living in this tiny little place uh, where you are your solution and where the world gives you your definition. Listen, uh, Proverbs 18, 21 says it this way. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. Proverbs 13, 3. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. And he who opened wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 10 and 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. You see, what the psalmist is saying here is that when we sit in the seat of the scornful, is we take our place among those who speak hostile words about the things of God. We step out of the realm of praise and into the realm of criticism. Criticism the I heard someone say the smallest ism there is. <laughs> Criticism. When all of a sudden, it, it, you know, it's interesting to me. The seat of the scornful is the seat of the mocker. And the mocker is one who has hostile speech towards God and the things of God. When all of a sudden we're giving voice to doubt and, and to, uh, to division and to all of these different things, we begin to rob ourselves of the blessing of the bowl. Because there's some boundaries that we got to have. There's some stuff that if we want the blessing of God to rest on our life, you don't say. The Bible says that even the archangel Michael would not bring a railing accusation against Satan. I mean, we're talking about the devil. But he wouldn't do it. Because there's some things that it's not our place to say. There's some things that, that we, even when we're feeling doubt, do not give voice to your doubts. When you're feeling fear, do not respond and speak out of fear. Oh, no. It's what Joseph said when, when they brought home the bloody coat. He said, all these things are against me. And he lived on like that for about 20 more years, believing that everything in his life was against him. He gave voice to something that wasn't true. And, and in a very real way, he, he sort of mocked what God was doing because he didn't understand it. And so, we have to be careful. There's some conversations we don't need to have. Look at David and Michael when he danced and brought the ark back in. She stood in her room and she despised him and her words betrayed her feelings. You see, note the progression in these uh, verses that words came last. First was the ear, then it was the actions, the feet. Not full commitment to travel the path of sinners, but standing in it. And then finally come the mocking words. And I want to tell you this, that words are a signal. Because the way that we begin to speak about the things of God, the plans of God, our future with God, our relationship. Well, God doesn't love me. And God doesn't care about me. And, and I prayed and I don't know where it came. Listen, all I'm saying is this. Is you can't find your way to a blessed life by criticizing, by mocking, by, by being Debbie Downer and Doubter all the time. You can't get there that way. It's boundaries that must be built for blessings. And so that's the first thing that people do. I'll just point one, but I, my, my next two points are not very long. The next thing that blessed people do is they create a source of communion. Now look, we've been talking about the bowl. But we all know that if I take this fish and I put him in the bowl, 
and there's no water in there, he's still going to die. Boundaries without a space for communion are pointless. Amen. That's the Old Testament. They were living by the law. This is why the Bible tells us the letter killeth, but the spirit maketh alive. Is there's got to be a place of communion. You know the interesting thing about how fish breathe? I looked it up today just to be sure I wasn't telling you all a lie. I said, why can't fish breathe air? Because we know that they breathe oxygen. But their physical organ, the gill, it takes from water oxygen. So it breathes and needs the same thing that you and I need, but there has to be an intermediary for it in order for it to live. So we can have the bowl and the boundaries, but if there's not a place for it to interact with the environment around it, it cannot gain from its environment. It cannot breathe air directly. And that is the nature. And so the psalmist first tells us the boundaries of the blessed life, and then he pivots to the place where blessing can live. Because all blessings have a source and a space that they can live in. Listen, it's the next verse. It says, he does not sit, stand in the way of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It's the environment of his life. It's not the way the world does it. It's not what culture's doing. It's not all of those things. It's not all that. It's the word and the law of God. And so we have to create a source of communion, a space for communion in our life. Because God's word and God's will are inseparable. The Bible is a book that reveals truth about its true author. And the psalmist tells us that the source of the blessed life isn't from the world's counsel the sinner's way or the scornful tongue. But listen, the blessed man delights in the law of God. And in his word, he meditates. That word meditate there means ponder. He, he marinates on it. He thinks about it day and night. Just like a fish floating in water. He stays in the word. He breathes in the word. And he breathes out the word. And so, because he cannot breathe oxygen directly, when he breathes it in, it gives him life. And when he breathes it out, it also gives him life. Because it cleans stuff out of his system that never should be there in the first place. And that's how God made a fish to live. And it will never grow. It will never survive if it doesn't have a space for communion. A space to breathe. Listen, I know, I know this is not a Sunday. I realize I'm teaching here tonight. But this is the problem with so many weak Christians today. Is we're gasping. I don't know what to do. Trying to pull it from our environment that we're living in. And we have not created a space in which God can speak to us. you got to create room in your life. To have communion with God. Because if you want to see the blessed life and your God-given potential, you're not going to get there on your own. You're not going to get there in your strength. You're not going to get there because you've got a nice bowl of religion and you say, I've got boundaries, I'm doing it right. No, you got to pray. you got to talk to God. And you know what? It's not enough just to talk to God. you got to let God talk to you. you got to let God get in your spirit. Sometimes you got to let God get in your face. And tell you what you've been doing wrong. Sometimes you've got to let him pull that stuff out of you that doesn't need to be there. Because if it doesn't get pulled out, you'll go belly up soon. It's the nature of blessing. Is it floats in the word like a fish. And listen, water is exactly what he needs to surround himself with in order to extract the life-giving oxygen that comes through his gills. And I'm here to tell you that the word is our water. The Word and the Spirit are our water. It's the one thing that sets into motion every other blessing in our life. Hear me out. It's the thing that sets in order every other blessing in our life. So faith, Romans tells us, chapter 10. So faith comes from hearing. And hearing by the Word of the Lord. The starting point for contentment. The joy the satisfaction of life is the word of God. 
Listen, it is the seedbed of everything good that God wants to give you and me. It's the seedbed. It's where it starts at. Amos 3, 7, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. What is he saying? He's saying, I put it in my word. If you want to know what my will for you is, if you want to know what my plan for you is, if you want to know what kind of life that I've called you to live, I've placed it in my word. And there's nothing you'll find from God that's outside of his word. It's all in his word. Praise the Lord. I'm getting a sales call. (laughs) Don't you always get those too? Amen. So it's the starting point. Somebody say it's the starting point. There's nothing from God that you'll find that's outside of his word. He has revealed it in his word. He has procured it and promised it by his word. And so a blessed life is one that creates space for communion. One that clears time and space in which you can commune with God through his word. Listen, your bowl is not enough. Your Sundays and your Wednesdays is not enough. Your boundaries of places you don't go and things you don't do, that's not enough. Listen to the right podcast, the right radio station, not enough. None of those things will save you. What you need is a personal place of relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what you really need. That's what will help you to grow into the Christian. Because, listen, you can't, you can't sustain your life based on what's happening in the pulpit or in the preacher's life or in, in the worship team's life. You, you can't sustain your walk with God based on ministry that other people are doing. Now look, they're there to equip you, to bless you. We can go into the theology of New Testament ministry. They're there to call you out of sin. We're here to do a lot of things. A lot of good can come. But you will never reach your potential if you never open this book. Amen. We've got to fill our life with God's word. Because a blessed life grows entangled with God's thoughts and God's ways and God's will. And so Jesus said it this way, man shall not live by bread alone, but he said by every word that proceeds out of my mouth. You know, you know what the American church is missing so desperately? It's one word, I'm fixing to tell it to you. It is personal discipleship. This is what God has been dealing with me about with my family and with my kids. Because I'm trying to find ways, I've offered my kids money. If you'll read a certain amount of chapters a week, I'm going to pay you. Whatever I've got to do to get the habit of interacting and communing with God in your life. We've got to disciple people. Listen, just coming to church isn't the solution. Churches are filled with people that are still full of anxiety, still bound up in sin. Churches all across this nation are full of people who come and they hear positive, uplifting messages, but they have have the boundary, they have the bowl, but they don't fill it with the water of communion and relationship. Blessing grows where there are boundaries. And blessing grows where there is a place of communion and interaction. When we create an environment of relationship with God in our life, we can begin to grow. And we can begin to live. But listen, we need to tap into a greater source too. That's the third and final life-giving principle. Psalm 1-3, as I'm going to wind to a close over the next couple of minutes here. He says, listen to what happens when you create boundaries and space for God to speak in your life and relationship. Listen to what happens. He says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does. Somebody say, and all that he does. And all that he does, he prospers. Sounds a lot like Romans 8, 28. All things work together for the good of them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. He said all, all things. He prospers in all things. He's like a tree planted by streams of living water. What does that mean? It means that, you know, you know if, if you put a tree in, in a buckled, bucket or a barrel like they sell at the store, it, it really will never grow. It's kind of like a fish. But if you plant it in the ground where it's got room to spread roots, it can grow big and grow strong as long as it's got a consistent water source. And this is what God says uh, and, and speaks to us through Psalm 1. He says that the blessed life looks like a tree planted by a stream of living water. Why is that important? Because that tree is in the optimal environment in which it can thrive. Because it has a continual connection to the source. 
because it has a continual connection to life-giving water. Its, its roots grow deep, and because the roots grow deep, the wind can't knock it over, amen? And its limbs grow broad, and, and, it, and it begins to produce fruit, and, and it has purpose and design, and it becomes all that the seed said that it could be because it's found a way to tap into the greater source. Now listen, a fish can live in a bowl. But if you take this fish out of the bowl and you put him in the lake and you turn him into the wild, in fact, you don't even have to do that. If you put him in a bigger bowl, he'll grow bigger than this. If you put him in a large tank, he'll grow bigger than this. And the size of his potential has a lot to do with the environment that he's created around him. And so, listen, trees are a lot like fish because the better the environment, the bigger they grow. And their potential can be realized when placed in the environment where they have room to thrive. You see, in the New Testament, we have everything that we need to grow. We got everything. Now, in the Old Testament, they lived in a little fishbowl. They had boundaries and they had the word to commune with God through. But they didn't have a living source like we do. Because in John 7, Jesus speaking on the last day of the great feast, he said, He that believeth on me as the scripture hath said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. It's streams of living water. And when you're planted by the stream, when you're a fishy living in the stream, you can grow as big as your potential says you can. Listen to what Peter said. He said, we, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. By his divine power. What is his divine power? Acts chapter 1. He says, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And so we need a place to commune with God through his word and let his word speak to us. But, but if you really want to get big, if you really want to do that, you've got to get a bigger bowl. And I want to tell you what the biggest bowl of all is, is when we begin to learn to walk in the spirit that we do not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And the spirit propelled and the spirit led life can lead you to a measure of blessing that you never thought was possible. So many people resisting the baptism of the spirit, but they don't understand what they're missing out on. He said, these are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. You see, the Old Testament was a smaller bowl. The letter killeth, but the spirit maketh alive. Because if I don't put new water in, he'll eventually die. And that's what happens when we have religion and even sometimes theology that we cling to. But life outside of the spirit, we will never really sustain and become what God called us to be. And so what am I saying in this service? Why have I brought this little friend blessing all the way here to talk to you tonight? Here's what I'm talking to you about. Is, is sometimes we're living in a little bowl and we're upset with God that our life isn't what it ought to be. See, a believer in the New Testament has access an ability that the Old Testament believer does not. You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me in Judea and Samaria, Jerusalem, to the uttermost parts of the earth. He said, I'm going to transform you. He said, you are fishers of men, but come with me. Or, you're fishers, but I, come with me, I'll make you fishers of men. I, there, there's a transforming experience that comes through the leadership of the Spirit. And I'm not just talking about a one-time experience, but I'm talking about a living, moving, breathing stream of the Spirit into your life. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 5. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. That leads me to believe that if you are not led by the Spirit, you are under the law. And you don't want to be under the law. Because you can't live up to the law. But he said, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. There is 
thou, uh, now, therefore, no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And what I'm telling you is, is that, that when we jump into the life of the Spirit, and we begin to walk in the Spirit, and we begin to pray in the Spirit, our potential is enlarged. God begins to talk to us and lead us to places we thought we could never go. And it's just like our little friend Blessing, that if we take him and turn him into Darbon Bayou, you know what's going to happen is he's going to get bigger. And if we put him and a few others together, they're going to get bigger. And they're going to start taking habitat that didn't belong to them. And they're going to start overcoming stuff that they were never, uh, never would have faced. They're going to find strength that they would have never had. Why? Because they're in a source of living water. My hope is not just in religious routine, form, boundary, shape, or even in a daily habit of Bible reading, which we do need, but it's in an interaction and an environment of the Spirit that God has called every believer to walk in. And so I want us to stand together. Listen to what he says in Galatians 5.25. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep step with the Spirit. I looked up the word, it means march. Because a spirit-led church is a moving church. It's not a church where people sit around and wonder if the bowl will ever get bigger. You see, what God wants to do is he wants to take the limits off. He wants to take the limits off of your family, of your marriage, of your ministry, of your life. And he does that through the baptism and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. That's what God really wants to do, is he wants you to be like the tree planted by rivers of living water. He wants you to dip your soul into something that carries life to you every single day, that leads you, that puts words in your mouth and, and, and ideas and thoughts in your heart that come from God. That's what God wants to do. And so every single day, every day, we get to wake up and we get to choose our bowl. So my question tonight is, how big is your bowl? I just, I want to ask you, are you struggling with boundaries and stuff that you've allowed into your life that is clouding your environment so that you can't really hear God or struggling to survive there? Maybe that's the answer. Are you struggling with boundaries? Maybe for somebody, it's that you've got boundaries, but you've fallen away from personal time of communion and space for which God can speak to you. I suggest you find a place every day that you can, whether it's in the car. Listen, summer messes with routines. Our family, we ain't got a routine this summer. Somebody asked, what you doing tomorrow? I was like, I don't know. I'm going to ask Dawson and find out. <laughs> I don't know. But I know this. Doesn't matter what time of day we normally pray. If, you, if you're very disciplined and structured, you better find time every day to commune with God. In fact, if you want to do it the way Jesus did it, you'll get up early before dawn and do it. Amen. And so maybe that, that is your issue. Maybe, maybe it's that you haven't created a space of communion in your life. Or maybe it's, it's just that you haven't really been open to see what the Spirit will want to do. Because I want to tell you this, the Spirit will take you into wild places. You know that almost every miracle in the Bible happened with an unreasonable request? Hey, buddy, you want to see? Put mud in your eyes. What? Can you imagine if we did that here? Somebody came and prayed for healing. Said, uh, somebody run outside and get some mud. <laughs> Put it all over him. Miracles often come. That's the way the Spirit works. It will tell you to do stuff that does not make sense. It will tell you to walk up to a complete stranger and say, can I pray with you? I don't know why I feel this way, but can I pray with you? It will cause you to send money to somebody that you had never talked to. God's Spirit will lead you to do wild things. Things. But listen to this, when the Christian life gets into wide open spaces, it begins to grow. God begins to use you in a way that you could never imagine. You know what we need in this church? We need people who are willing to step into the stream. People who are willing to be the weird gifts of the Spirit person. I miss Brother Terry Oglethorpe so much because when the Spirit moved upon him, he was willing to operate in the gift of tongues and interpretation. You know why that's important to the church? Because 
Sometimes that's how God needs to speak to us. And listen, that gift is in, it's in this room right now. Somebody has it. You just have to get a bigger bowl and say, God, whatever you want me to be, whatever you want to make me. God, if I have to become the weirdo. Look at every Old Testament prophet. God's spirit used them mightily, but they had, they had to step out of their boundaries first. They had to step out of their understanding, and they had to enlarge their bowl. I believe that's what God wants us to do. Can we just lift our hands and pray right now? Lord, I thank you for your word tonight. I pray, Lord, that it will settle in somebody's heart. I pray that it will speak to somebody's spirit. That somebody will walk out of here challenged and renewed in their desire to live for you, God. We pray, Lord, that you would take the limits off of your church, God. Take the limits off of your people, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would inspire ministries to spring forth. God, let, let people rise up and start community groups that win souls and that change lives. God, let people step into ministry roles where they impact this community. God, let your church shine as a light in darkness. God, let us be everything that you called us to be. Let us live the truly blessed life that you want us to live. In Jesus' name we pray.